This is Adoption The Long View, a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption. Join me as we take a closer look at what happens after you adopt your child and begin parenting them. Your adoption journey isn't over then, it's just beginning. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of thought-provoking and influential guests as we help you make the most of your adoption journey. Like any trip worth taking, there will be ups and downs and challenges. Here's what you're going to wish you'd known from the start. Ready? Let's go. Why are truth and trust so important in adoptive families? In all families, really. Isn't it okay sometimes to keep some things under wraps for someone's own good? I've written before about the Greek word sorites, which means heap. It's a philosophical paradox based on the idea that no grain of sand is a heap of sand, but over time, grains of sand become a heap of sand. The conundrum is that the moment of transition is not clear. This has also been called the manana paradox, and, and this is in quotes, an unwelcome task which needs to be done, but is always a matter of indifference, whether it's done today or tomorrow. That's a quote from British philosopher Dorothy Edgington. We can consider secrets this way, specifically adoption secrets, or hard-to-tell parts of an adoption story, and the sometimes unwelcome task of disclosing them. Of course, there is a time and a way to tell, but too often, somehow, the day marked tell never seems to arrive on the calendar, and this can create huge problems. No single day that you don't tell somebody part of their story is a huge deal. Waiting one more day is never a problem, until it is. Over time, the days pile up, and seemingly overnight, you're gobsmacked with a big secret you'd meant to deal with, and, on top of that, now you also need to explain why you kept a secret. Double punch in the trust center. No one is saying that you need to be having frank conversations with your six-year-old about their conception story, or more difficult to deliver details of all that led to them coming to you. Age and developmental appropriateness always need to be taken into account when disclosing difficult pieces of the story. What we're talking about today is the cost of never having these conversations or of somehow waiting too long. And what happens when truth, as it almost always does these days, comes out? What happens when something you thought you knew about yourself turns out not to be so? What happens to your relationships when you discover you have a heap of days behind you in which trusted people allowed you to live in ignorance of your story. Let's meet Brad Ewell and Fred Nakora, two men who have had to reassemble themselves after shocking truths became known to them well into their adulthood. Brad and Fred are known as LDAs or late discovery adoptees. And I think it's important that you see the impact large breaches of trust have because a small heap is still a heap. And we are still as a culture, not super adept at knowing how to disclose and discuss hard parts about adoption. So my first guest today is Brad Ewell. He's a husband, father, writer, police officer, and late discovery adoptee. He made his adoption discovery in 2019 at 48 years old. He's in reunion with several members of his biological family and has been an advocate for his father's release from prison. He's written micro memoirs, had an article published in Severance Magazine, been interviewed on several podcasts, and guest posted for me on LavenderLews.com. Welcome, Brad. Thank you, Lori. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so happy to have you here, too. Along with Brad is Fred Nakora. Fred has an undergraduate degree in business administration and master's degrees in management technology and architecture, in addition to a lifetime secondary teaching license. Fred was the last in his family to know he had been adopted when someone spilled the beans accidentally when he was 41. Fred is committed to bringing truth and transparency to the entire adoption process. Welcome, Fred. Thanks, Laurie. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and talk to the folks that uh, listen to you. Wonderful. I'm so glad to have both of you, especially listening to men in the adoption space is really enlightening. We don't hear enough of that. So thank you so much for being people who are exploring and seeking. Let's start kind of at the beginning, but your beginning is not is in the middle. So tell us the story behind becoming a late discovery adoptee, maybe with finding out and then working backwards from there. Brad? So for me, I think I'm. what happened to me is what's happened to a lot of people now, which is I took an ancestor DNA test, not for any reason where I was searching, thought something was wrong in my family or thought there was some secret out there. My parents that raised me never really talked about genetically or historically where we came from past my grandparents. So I thought it'd be a fun way to see where I came from. I took that test, I think in 2017. 
And then in 2019, someone reached out to my wife and I through the message board and said, I'm related to this BE person on your account and I can't figure out how. And my wife and this woman talked for probably two or three weeks before went one day when my wife and I were out on a lunch date, the woman messaged her and dropped the bomb in our lap that she thought that I was her sister's baby boy that was given up for adoption right after birth. Wow. I think I used the word gobsmacked before, and that must have felt <laughs> like a gobsmack. You weren't, you had no suspicion. You just were totally surprised by this. I had no suspicion. And even when she told us that's what she thought, my plan after lunch was to come home, find my birth certificate and get her back on the right track because it still made no sense to me, her theory. Instead, when I got home, when I got my birth certificate out, I started seeing things that I'd had that document for decades. And probably the first time I ever really looked at it and started noticing things were different. And then I got my wife's out who was born in the same city in the same year as me and put them together and they couldn't have been more different. And that's when kind of the wheels came off the bus and things started to seem different. Were there any tells on the birth certificate that you know now that you didn't know prior to this? Was it obvious? Knowing what I know now, yes. Basically, if you're old enough to remember what a microfiche printout looked like, that's what my birth certificate looked like. It was all black with white writing. My wife's instead was a white document that was all typed and signed. Everywhere that there should have been like parent signatures on mine, there were just typed in names. And then my birth certificate, I was born in Dallas. My birth certificate was issued from Austin, where my wife's was stamped and sealed in Dallas. So what happens in Texas when they alter your birth certificate is the new one is issued from the state. So they stamp and seal it in Austin when they issue it. So all adoptees look like they come from Austin, at least from that era? That's what I've seen. I have another friend who kind of walked through this with me. And when she sent me a, a picture of her birth certificate, you could put the two of ours on top of each other and short of the names being different, nothing else looked different. Interesting. Fred, why don't you catch us up to this point too? How did you find out? This is back in 2000. I'd been living up in Minnesota with my family. I had three kids at the time, uh, along with my wife. Uh, my kids were roughly, I'm going to say five, four, and maybe two years old. And uh, we had just recently moved back to the Twin City or from the Twin Cities to the Milwaukee Metro. My mother had passed away just a, a couple of years before that. My father, several years prior to that. So they were both dead at the time. We were invited to a twin uncle's uh, birthday party. It was a large family gathering, about 300 people at a, a restaurant in a big hall. And while we were there, I was off getting beverages for everybody in my family. And when I came back to the table, my wife looked at me and uh, indicated one of my elderly aunts had indicated she's known me since the day I was adopted. And that was the first time I became aware of it. I went and questioned her. She fell apart. I felt bad for her. But at the same time, I'll say I fractured. My world fell apart. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I just gathered my family and hightailed it out of there. I, I, I felt like the emperor in the emperor's new clothes. I, I felt exposed and naked. And uh, that feeling remained for quite a while. You know, it's interesting listening to Brett because I've, I've talked to Brett a couple of times and uh, the birth certificate, man, you just described my birth certificate. Wisconsin does it the same way. The only thing I'd add to it and this was a birth mother that I found out after I discovered I was adopted. She pointed out, uh, I think it's in the upper left-hand corner, there's actually a, a document number that refers to the statute that creates the second birth certificate. So other birth certificates don't have that up in the upper corner, in addition to being black with white printing. I never put that together prior to knowing that. I would say, you know, and as I've talked to Brad before, for me, I always knew something was wrong. I, I knew there was a miss somewhere. I just never knew what it was. I couldn't put two and two together. To me, as I looked at myself and my family and all those around me, you know, two plus two equals seven. It just never made sense. The, the puzzle pieces didn't fit. I'm going to put in the show notes some information. If people are more curious about learning more about birth certificates, put some resources in there so they can find out what the policies are in their states today. Let's go to the next stage of your story, which is how, what's the story behind being placed for adoption, Brad? Do you know much of that? Yes. So for me, it was a very complicated situation for my birth mother. 
my biological father was actually married. The woman that, well, I have to back up if I get myself mixed up. The person that found me online through ancestry turned out to be my aunt. She was also the first wife of my biological father who had started a relationship with her much too young sister to have a relationship with when they were still married. And then my aunt and he got divorced. He moved to Dallas. My aunt moved to Dallas. My biological mother moved to Dallas shortly thereafter to live with her sister and got pregnant from my aunt's ex-husband. That's a lot. That's so, a lot to process. Yeah, so, yes. So for her, my biological mom died 19 years before I found out I was adopted. So I've never got, I'll never get a story from her, but from everybody that's talked to me from the biological family, the biggest thing was she did not want anybody to know that she was having her sister's ex-husband's child. And if you see the two of us together, you can't not mistake us for being kin. So that wouldn't have worked out if she would have kept me. We teased a little bit at the beginning about your bio father. So remind me, we'll get to him. Before. But for now, Fred, tell me, tell us about how it came that you were placed for adoption. What I found out was, and I did meet my birth mother. We were eventually reunited. And so I got the story from her, but she'd been dating uh, my biological father for about a year and uh, she got pregnant. And when she disclosed it to him, I think she had hopes that they could get together. Unfortunately, his, his response was less than romantic. Uh, he said, sure, I'll marry you, but I think we'll be divorced within a year. And uh, she decided that wasn't a direction she wanted to go. Uh, it, this was 1958 that I was conceived, born in 1959. At that time, there weren't a lot of options. Uh, she was a school teacher. Teaching today still has what I'd call an ethical threshold, but it's nowhere near where it was back in 1958-59. So from her perspective, there weren't a lot of options. So she did go to a, a work wage home that was in the Milwaukee area. She was from a, a town that was about 40 miles away from Milwaukee. She spent the last six months of her pregnancy there, which included over the Christmas period, delivered me. Uh, and then from there, I went through Lutheran Social Services and was adopted by my family at uh, roughly two and a half, three months is when the best that I can tell that I was placed in their home. Okay. So a couple questions. What is a work wage home? From what I understand and what she described and what are in the, the redacted social worker notes, it's a place where the pregnant woman goes. I know the area that she went to. It's a pretty affluent area. And I know the hospital I was born in, she was pretty close to the hospital there. She was basically a nanny and a housekeeper and worked for a family. And then while she was there, um, eventually she, she gave birth and then did return home and was told just say you're in Europe for six months and forget this ever happened. And have you been able to figure out where you were in those two months between your no, birth? No, you know, it's interesting. I, I worked through the state of Wisconsin to get my birth information. And Wisconsin's currently got a bill up that would open up the records. And that is often, a, will say, a contentious point with adoptees, uh, access to their vital statistics at birth, their, their vital information, such as the original birth certificate. The piece that still is, even if that goes through, that will be left out. Anytime there's an interim placement, whether it's in foster care, whether it's in an orphanage, those tend to be done by private agencies and those records, nobody can really get at them. So to this day, I still have no clue what happened during the first roughly two and a half, three months of my life. I believe it. I wasn't damaged too bad, but I really couldn't tell you where it was or how many times I changed from one foster family to another. Those records just aren't available to me. Hopefully that was all loving and nurturing, but just the, the fact that it's a black hole in your history must be something just to, it's not, frustrating. to not know it. Yeah. I, I know that as I talk to the social workers at the state, they're reading all the information. They've got all the files there. So they know what happened, you know, so here's total strangers know where I was, what I did, but it's my history and I'm not allowed to know. Mm -hmm. So the next logical part of the story is I'm going to ask you, Brad, how do you have any ideas why they never got around to telling you? Was that planned from the start or just kind of never got around to it? I learned that it was at least planned 
from the start. I don't know how long they planned to not tell me. I found out through an aunt that I spoke with after I learned that I was adopted that she had been told by my grandmother that, oh, my parents are adopting a child. And then just a few minutes later, my grandmother called back and said, they're not telling anybody this child's adopted. They're not telling him he's adopted. I don't know if it was their plan to never tell me or and like, or if like you said, you don't tell something for a little while. And all of a sudden, as years pass by, it becomes a very awkward thing to have to tell. But my dad, my dad passed about a year, year and a half after I found out. And my mother has Alzheimer's. So I didn't get a lot of answers from him and she just can't give me any. And I think it's important to not try to assign blame at this point. I know that's, you know, when I listen to it, I'm like, how could they? But then I remember that the guidance at that time was not really helpful for adoptive parents. Um, and they may have gotten the same message that birth parents got, which is just move on and pretend it never happened. And because we didn't have DNA testing on our horizon, we may have thought that that was doable. But I think that also kind of leads people to believe that there's something distressing about being adopted. Like, why wouldn't you tell somebody that they were adopted? Because there's something disturbing about it. So I think that's the under, whether you say that or not, I think that's the underlying message. Does that ring true for either of you? It does for me. I can tell you that in one of the few conversations my parents would have with me after I found out, that was one of the things they hit on a couple of times was they didn't want me to not feel loved because I was adopted. So, I mean, that absolutely rings true with what you just said. Yeah, actually for me, it, uh, my story is a little different than Brad's. My parents had both passed. So any information that I got concerning their motives was secondary. I did talk to one of my father's sister who indicated that it was actually my father who did not want me to know because when he was young, he was his parents divorced in the 30s and it wasn't a clean divorce and it got ugly. And as a result, he ended up in the county orphanage for an extended period. And supposedly my father felt that by not telling me he could save me from being facing the horrors of being an orphan. You know, that was his sister's words. And I really can never tell you if, if that's the actual motive that they had. It's plausible. And, and I would tend to believe it. You know, I, I look back at my parents and they gave me a loving home. I don't necessarily look at them as evil because they didn't tell me. But at the same time, I'll say, I wish they would have told me. It, it would have made life probably a bit easier for me. But um, that, that was something they did. Interestingly enough, I, after I discovered, and I'll say certain memories got released, the mind is an interesting thing. And if you go through something like this, you, you learn a lot about how a mind works. And, and I believe your mind does tend to want to protect you. And I did recall there was a discussion I had with my mom when I was, I'm going to say, in first grade midway through first grade. And I remember coming home and describing another adopted boy at school that everybody knew he was adopted. He uh, acted out frequently. He seemed to be angry and he was had some behavioral issues. And I was talking to my mother about that. And she started, she cracked the door open. She said, how would you feel if you were adopted? And I just told her, I, I would not like that. I, I wouldn't want that. And I don't know if that shut the door for her. Um, that she didn't want to go down that path. And, you know, if it was my father driving it, then she'd be, that would be another thing she'd have to deal with. So it's hard to say. I, I think they made their decision. The other thing I would say is, you're right, Lori, back at that time, and it wasn't the dominant thought, but there was a significant thought and a significant, I'll say, vein in the adoption circles that believed that children were tabula rasas. They came out as blank slates, um, ready to be programmed. And you just simply could kind of plug and play and, and they would turn into your family. And my parents bought into that. And it, that as time went on, we found that's not true. And I think today, you know, from what I've talked to you about adoption and how your beliefs are, um, it, it's not true. It, it, it doesn't hold water and it really can't hold water. And eventually it, it will break. So the things that we can't talk about are things that become powerful, but powerful under the surface. And so we don't really have a way to release them, talk about them, wonder about them, process them. And this is why it's so important for adoptive parents. If you do have a piece of a story that is hard to tell, we have to figure out how to tell. And, and we'll get into that as well. You know, Brad, you wrote an essay for me that I really loved. 
you wrote your, the title of that was why my truth matters more than your comfort, which is what we're going to call this episode as well. What do you mean by this? What I mean, when I look at what my parents, how they worked through not telling me and the things that they were able to tell me after I found out was that you could tell even when their grown son knew he was adopted, they were completely uncomfortable with me having that knowledge. But for me, as I've grown through these past three and a half, almost four years now, having the truth about who I am, why I am the way I am has grounded me so much more than I ever have in my life that it matters. I mean, to me as a parent myself, my child's needs often matter more than my comfort. And that's kind of where I came with that title for you was I would rather be uncomfortable and have them have what they need than be comfortable and leave them wanting for something. So for so many adoptees I've talked to, what I've found is even when they know growing up, and I think we'll talk about this later, you've got to have the space to talk about the uncomfortable parts about being adopted. Because even though adoption is often a very beautiful thing, there's still some trauma and pain that goes with it, like just about everything else in life. So if I can summarize what you're saying, the truth can really ground a person and adoptive parents need to work to expand their comfort level to be able to encompass the truth and the whole truth. Is that yes. adequate? That's okay. perfect. Okay, great. Fred, you had a memoir come out recently, last fall. Is that correct? I did. Yes, October 2022, uh, Forbidden Roots. The name obviously refers to my genetic and biological roots that I was not allowed to access or, or wasn't. Uh, I couldn't know. And uh, that does summarize the journey. It, it starts from the time that I discovered in 2000 and carries the uh, reader through the next six years. I did meet my birth mother fairly early on. So that I was able to, you know, start to move forward because without that piece, it's really difficult to figure out how you fit into a family. Now I know Brad found out through DNA testing and I've figured out a few pieces. Interestingly enough, just nine months ago, and this, you know, I've known 23 years, but just nine months ago, I had a similar situation to what Brad just described, except for I was on the other end. I had a woman reach out to me and indicate she could not figure out how we were so closely related. We were first cousins and she just couldn't put it together. And then she revealed that her father was actually adopted. He never pursued finding out who he was before he died. He died fairly young. And it turns out he's my half-brother, my biological father had another child that got given up in adoption seven months before I was born. So he knocked me off the oldest throne. I'm now the second oldest. I love that the title of your book, Forbidden, kind of, it says to me that that word has power. Something is forbidden, you need to know about it. And so it speaks to that underground thing that has to has to come above ground. So, Yeah, and, and what I would say is, uh, you, you mentioned truth. I think the, the key words today are truth and transparency. And, and I'll say a couple of things about that. I'm, I'm very open in the book. I, I know Brad's read it. And I think that's one of the ways we bonded initially was, um, I think as he read the book, he figured out we related at a whole different level. Because then as I talked to Brad later about it, it was like all those thoughts that I had that made me feel odd, that made me feel alone, that made me feel like there was nobody else in the world that could understand that. As I talked to Brad, you know, and he he read that memoir, and then we related to those same thoughts, to those same feelings, to those same shocks and, and undermining of our foundation, and, and how do we reassemble, and how do we move forward? So it does cover that stuff. The, the other thing I just want to kind of throw in here is, you know, you were talking before about that relationship of hiding something. And if you start thinking about really what emotional intimacy is, emotional intimacy has to do with being able to connect to somebody without barriers in between that emotionally you're, you're basically open truth and transparent about what's going on. And if you do start holding things back, holding back parts, you're going to start affecting that emotional intimacy. And I, and I would say that was in retrospect, something I can see that I really never had with my parents. They were good parents to me. They gave me a loving home. They did a lot of wonderful things. They sacrificed for me. Um, but at the same time, there was always that barrier, that lack of truth that existed between us. And I, I think that 
filtered a lot of our interactions and and how we how we dealt with each other. That is so important, and thanks for bringing that up, Fred. Because what you're saying is that what's unspoken between two people is as important to attachment and intimacy as what is spoken. And when there's such a huge thing that's unspoken, it's just so much harder to deal with because the person doesn't know what's there. Yes. And even if you start filtering my parents and and my entire extended family was aware, along with certain neighbors, along with certain friends, there was a lot of people that was aware that I was adopted and I wasn't. And so if you start looking at all those people that I was interfacing with, you know, through the entire time I grew up with, that was a barrier that existed in our relationships. That was something that didn't make our relationships genuine at a very core level. And I don't want to assign emotions to you, but what was it like to realize that other people knew something about you that you yourself didn't know? I mean, you already mentioned about the person at the vital records or about the social workers, but what about family members knowing something about you that you don't know? You know, and I talked, actually, I, I had done, we, we, talked a little bit about WISAP, which is a Wisconsin agency that I think you're going to be attending. And I talked to uh, Patty there extensively about that. What gets really interesting and what I came to terms with and came to understand was any dialogue, any interaction you have with somebody, you may disagree or agree with them, but at a deep level, you know yourself better than how they know you. And so to suddenly find out that everybody know something about you at a very deep, significant level undermines that core need within you to own yourself and to actually stand strong in yourself. For me, it took that away, eliminated that. And I think in retrospect, that was something that you could argue whether I was aware at some level or not during the whole time I grew up, I would actually argue probably I was at some level, maybe not a conscious level, but it definitely impacted my ability to be self-assured and form an identity based on who I was, not who I needed to be to survive. So let's come to the present day. Brad, can you fill us in on how things are now? Add in birth family, maybe that story about your bio dad, add in adoptive family relationships. How are things now for you? And, and just how how you are with this news that came out to you a, f- a few years ago. So we'll, I'll start with my adoptive family. My adoptive family, once I found out and had the first phone call with my father where he told me, yes, you're adopted. We hadn't told you. We met probably three or four days after that and had an hour or so long conversation about me now knowing I was adopted. I had thought when we had that conversation that that was the beginning of an openness about the fact that I was adopted. It turned out to be their planned one and only conversation with me about it. They immediately didn't want to talk about it anymore, changed the subject anytime it came up. My dad passed about, let's see, he passed in February of 20 and I found out in April of 19. So it wasn't even a full year. But Right before he passed, I was at the hospital with him for a night and he started asking me about about my biological family because he knew that I had gotten to know some of them. And we actually got to have a great closure with it where he knew that I had found out he got to learn about them. My mom, on the other hand, is a lot sadder story. In, In some ways, it's easier. She has Alzheimer's. It's progressed pretty heavily over the past couple of years. I would say 99.9% of the time right now, she doesn't recall that I know that I'm adopted and I just leave it like that because it's re- it's it was much more of a struggle for her knowing that I knew than it was for my father. On the biological side of things, it's been wonderful and heartbreaking all at the same time. So I biological mom passed before I ever got to know her, so I'll never get to meet her. The aunt that found me, she and I talk occasionally. She lives in Tennessee, so she's a little bit further away from me. I have, or I had an aunt here in the Dallas area that I got really close to, and she passed away two and a half, three months now. So I lost one of the aunts that I found pretty quickly. My sister, I have a half sister and a half brother from my mom's side. Half sister and I are very close. She lives in the area. Half brother and I talk on occasion. I think we would be close to, but he lives further away. On my biological father's side, I have another half brother. He lives fairly close. We talk often. 
And then I've spent the last year and a half working at getting my father out of prison. He went to prison in 1972 when I was two years old with a life sentence that went from a life sentence with the possibility of parole to never being eligible for parole. And then last year we were able to get him through some legislation eligible for parole. And I brought him back to Texas from Louisiana for the first time in 50 years in November. Wow. That is quite a story. What was it like to see him that first time for you two to see each other? So the first time we met, I think it was a, it was such a shock to both of us because he found out when I found out that I existed. My, my, my birth mother never told him that she was pregnant with his child, but you can tell they were listed on his father on my birth kit. He was off doing the things he was up to that eventually got him in prison. So my biological mother kept her being pregnant from my biological father. He was off doing the things that he was into that eventually got him put in prison. So he wasn't around much to know anyway, but neither one of us knew about each other until the DNA discovery by my aunt. So what I can say is anybody that doubts genetic mirroring and the importance of it, it's only because you've had it for your whole life. The first time my father walked in a room, I had never met him. I would tell you that I've known that man his whole life. Uh, when he walked in the room, because there were several other people coming in the visitation room at the same time, I had seen some older pictures of him. I hadn't seen a recent picture, and I knew immediately that was my people. So it, it was a shock, to, I think a shock to both of us. And did you say you brought him home to live with you? He's living with you now? No, he's currently living about halfway between Dallas and Houston in a place that would be approved when he got, he was paroled. So we had to find a place that parole would approve. And kind of like Fred was talking about earlier with the wonders of records, nowhere legally on paper am I his son. So I'm not even considered an option for him to live with because I'm not a relative. And when Louisiana had visitation shut down in their prisons for COVID, I offered to explain the DNA test, to show them the DNA test because they were allowing family to come visit. And basically, I got the answer of, if you can't hand us a birth certificate with his name on it, you're not family for us. Wow. Just another way that birth certificates are so important to everyone involved. How about you, Brad? How are you with the big speed bump in your story that happened when you were 48? I'm getting a lot better. I started therapy about six months after I made my discovery and it's helped tremendously. It's taken a lot of time to get very settled with the idea. I think one of the reasons I like to do podcasts is every time I tell the story, it becomes a little more real in my own head. But for the most part, I've found it really good. I mean, probably the worst part, and I think Fred can attest to the same thing, is the idea that we've both found out so late that we find people that we really, you know, for no other better words, like my sister, absolutely love her to death. Met her in May of 2019. In November of 2019, she was diagnosed with cancer and we're counting days. So it's so hard to come into these relationships late with so little time. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. And I wish everyone in your story, peace and connection. Fred, catch us up to where things are now with your bio family, your adoptive family, and yourself. My adoptive family, obviously my parents had passed away by the time I found out, so I really never was able to bring resolution of it with them, which to me, that that's a sadness. I, I truly regret that. They made their decision. They did what they did, and I'm not angry at this point. I went through an angry phase, but that phase is, has passed. I think we could have gotten to a place of understanding. I think we could have, I, I, I could have let them know how I appreciate what they did for me at a whole different level. I'll say when I look back at it, adoptive parents are awesome and amazing. And especially where I see it going today with the open adoptions, where it's functioning so much more, almost like a guardianship, you know, to some extent, uh, but yet you're doing all the parenting you're taking that entire responsibility yet at the same time, you know, be very open and honest about this, that, that genetic relay is not occurring. So there's, there's your, your motives are very altruistic. Hopefully, you know, some, I think some adoptive parents have gone into it with less than altruistic motives, but for the most part, 
I've come to terms. I'm, I'm a father of three children who are now grown adults, 30 through 25. And I can honestly say, I, I believe the role of the adoptive parent should be placed much higher than even that of the birth parent, because quite honestly, you're tackling something. Adoptive kids can go fairly smoothly. They can have some bumps that other kids aren't going to have. And I think taking on those challenges, doing the right thing, being open and transparent is something that should really be lauded. It, it should be recognized for what it is. And, and I wish I could have brought that to my parents to help them resolve some of that. As far as other extended family, I would say it's kind of all over the board. You, you know, it's been 20 years since I found out. Initially, most of them had the same reaction that Brad's parents had kind of like, okay, we had the discussion, let's stuff them back in the closet and pretend it never happened. That was, I think, the initial read on it. Over time, some of them found it a, a desecration of my parents that I would search for birth uh, family. And so some of those relationships struggled a lot. Over time, some have come around and understand that I have some needs that maybe are different than what they understand. And maybe my understanding of who I am is different than what it was when I wasn't allowed to consciously know that I was adopted. And, and over 20 years, I've changed, quite honestly. I've, I've changed considerably. I think I've come to terms with that I am adopted because it was a shock. And it was, I'm going to say, leveling is the best way to say it. To some extent, what I explained to other adoptees who aren't late discovery adoptees, you know, the discovery creates such an explosion that all you can see is initially the crater that's left from the explosion of discovery. However, as time goes on, eventually the dust settles and you realize there's an entire landscape that you have to deal with as well. And that you start moving beyond that and looking at you as an adopted person, not just um, a person that lived a life that you needed to in order to function as somebody that didn't know they were adopted. So I'll say to those that didn't, you know, allow or or for some reason can't really accept that, you know, I've moved on from it and and I've allowed myself to explore and grow into who I am as a whole person. Some of those relationships, quite honestly, have been severed. You know, not that I'm not receptive to more communication and, and more engagement, but it would have to be on a term that I don't have to pretend that I never found out I was adopted. That can't be the premise of my relationship with them. Birth family, it's interesting because of all the people I know, quite honestly, of all the people I know, Brad has some of the most successful birth family reunions, which is awesome. The vast majority of people that I know, there's bumps along the way. You know, you've got to keep in mind with like siblings, these are people that you have no history with. What makes a sibling a sibling? Yeah, there's a genetic component to it, but you grew up sharing the same experiences going through life together, having mom and dad together, you know, going on trips together, the bad, the good, the ugly, all those things you had together that make up the history that makes those sibling relationships special. When you meet somebody and you're 45 and they're your sibling, there's no history. I think what you have to do, and at least what I've had to do, is accept it for what it is and give it time and let it grow into what it can be, not necessarily what I might have fantasized it would be. So whereas Brad's story is like awesome and amazing, and I relate to some of that. You're right, Brad. You, you meet some of these people. I've got my dad's half-brother that has been wonderful to me, and his half-sister has been wonderful to me. One of his aunts, wonderful, and I'm still in communication with some of them. They held a family reunion for me when I first found out. Some of the family was just awesome. And so for those people, it, it's sad. You, you meet them, they're in their 60s. You know, They've got maybe 15, 20 years left, and then they're gone. And, and so that's hard. My mother's side, that was very hard. I reunited with her fairly early but she carried such a heavy burden of shame, and she really never could get past that. Even when we would meet in restaurants, I would have to come in the back door, sit at a table. She would come in the front door. She didn't want anybody to see us together. She was afraid they'd figure it out. I actually wasn't even allowed to go to her funeral because she was petrified that other people would figure out that she had a baby out of wedlock. You know, and, and I think that was a direct result of the impact of in the 50s and 60s, that shame blanket was so heavy. And I'll even say, you know, the system that's in place today that 
you know, contacts her and says, you know, we know you've been through this shameful event. If you want to bury your past and keep it buried, you know, there's an implied message. You should keep it buried. Don't you dare, you know, let the world know. It reinforced her shame. And, and I think that was hard. And she carried that to her grave. So for me, it was hard to see that within her, that she never really could get past that. She just wasn't able to. I've got a half-sister that's still alive on her side. I did have a half-brother on her side. I met him once. He died shortly thereafter. Never really got to formulate that relationship with him. Half-sister, it, it, it's been up and down over the years. Sometimes it's strong. Other times we struggle a bit. So I'm, I'm at a pretty good place. You know, I, what I've come to terms with is that I am not, you know, I'll say my, I know my original birth name was Stephen Walter. My biological father's name was Brookshire. So I, I put together, I have my little, you know, ghost family of Stephen Walter Brookshire. And I accept pretty much, I haven't done a name change and I don't see that I'll, I'll ever do that. But at the same time, I'm going to say, I, I accept that I am Stephen Walter Brookshire and that's part of my experience. I've done life as Fred Nicor and I'm happy to do life as Fred Nicor. Fred Nicor has had a great life, but that doesn't mean that that's the entirety of the life. There's, there's a bigger piece to it, a bigger component. And I, I think I finally come to terms through a lot of counseling. <laughs> and uh, actually, one of the biggest things that helps reading other adoptees memoirs, getting to know their stories. And as of late, I've been reading birth mothers memoirs. And that's very helpful, too, because you do understand their side of the story a lot better. So to some extent, I, as I've been engaging with the adoptee and adoption community, I found connections there. And some of those Missing history pieces that I can't get in other relationships, I actually find in those relationships because those are similar experiences to other adoptees, such as Brad, you know, we've got another friend, Jack, you know, we've got other friends that, you know, those are commonalities that we have that core of, of that late discovery issue. Well, it sounds like probably both of you have started with a healthy dose of resilience anyway, but some of the things that have helped along the way are counseling, community storytelling, story listening, trying to understand stories. And I'm not surprised at all, Fred, that you put openness and honesty and truth and transparency in, in the forefront as of being able to navigate all of this, because I think those are the things that are the antidotes to shame and secrecy, which is why this all happened. That was the, the root of it. So this kind of leads to another question. Can you think of anything that parents should keep from their children into adolescence and adulthood? Not that any of us are therapists, so we're not giving advice, but just is, is there anything that we can keep from people for their own good or even for our own good as parents? I think looking at it in that long-term view, like you're looking at adoption, there's an age appropriateness for everything. I mean, the perfect example I can give is when I made this discovery, I had, I think it would have been an 11-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 21-year-old. My discovery came with a father who was in prison for murder and how I came to be his son. All three of my kids got a somewhat different edited version of that story that was appropriate for their age. My 21-year-old heard the whole story. My 11-year-old heard a much briefer version that was, you know, dad found out he was adopted and his father is in prison. And I didn't shy away from answering questions if they asked, but I didn't feel good dumping the entire story on somebody that I didn't think at all was age appropriately ready to understand all of it. So I think long view, no, there's probably nothing that you keep from someone in the long view, but you dole it out in appropriate times during when they're at the right age. That's such a good demonstration of how you had to do that with this, with your news to your children who are at different developmental stages. How about you, Fred? Do you have anything to say on that? Uh, you know, I would generally concur with Brad. As an adoptive parent, you are their parent. You're the one, you know, performing all those parenting roles. And I'll say you're the best in tuned with where they're at. Now, along with that, I'm going to put an asterisk and say whether your child wants to or not, you know, and when they want to and when they don't, I think it's good if you introduce them to the concept of counseling. And maybe even if they're not in counseling, maybe you as an adoptive parent, have a counselor that you can bounce things off of and check with. You know, as a parent, there's a lot of things going on and there's a lot of dynamics. And, you know, very few parents are, I'm going to say, well-schooled and well-versed and, you know, academically trained in child psychology 
to the point to understand when is the right time, when's not the right time. So to have an expert on hand, I think is always a great idea. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with counseling. I think a lot of people look at counseling like if you go to counseling, you must have something wrong with you. No, actually, I think if you go to counseling, you're willing to kick the tires and, and address things that could be problematic to avoid having things kind of throw you off the tracks and, and really get in trouble. So I would say if you can get your kid involved in counseling, if they're receptive to it, if they're not, maybe you have a counselor that you can talk to about these different ideas and have somebody that you can bounce ideas off. To me, you know, you don't have to go it alone, you know? Yeah, that's really important to get a counselor or therapist for both parties, because sometimes it's about how the adoptee will receive that difficult piece of news. And sometimes it's about us being, as parents, being uncomfortable delivering it. So why are we, where's our discomfort? How can we neutralize our discomfort, even if it's a really hard thing? And that is something that you may need professional help for on both sides of that. Guidance on how to tell and also clarity on how to tell. So it's time for our last question. And uh, this is what we're asking all the season four guests. So can you tell us, um, Brad, I'll start with you again. How can we best support adoptees in building healthy identities and connections right from the start? For me, and this really comes from listening to your podcast, it's that idea of openness and not not the idea that there has to be biological family contact because sometimes I don't even think in my case that would have been a possibility. But the openness with a the story that yes you're adopted and here's you know at that age appropriate time why we chose to adopt as an adoptive parent you can find out the story about why they were relinquished for adoption that's something that your child may want to know i don't think it's something i think all of this comes down to not having secrets from your child but at the same time if they're not ready to know and they haven't asked you don't necessarily have to dump that to them but try to have all the information you can ready for them when they do start seeking. I think the biggest thing for identity forming is just holding that space. And I I just reread my essay that I wrote for you and I can't remember if I put it in there or not now, but I use my cousin as a great example. She's an adoptive parent as well. And I went and stayed at her house for a couple of days when I was traveling through the city that she lives in. And she has I believe four adoptive kids, maybe five. I lost track. But regardless, she when I was on the way there, she called me one day. She called me and said, Hey, um, just wanted to give you a heads up before you get here. One of my kiddos just stopped me and asked, Hey, is is Brad the one that's adopted? Is he the one that's coming? And she's like, Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one that's coming. He goes, Well, does he hate being adopted as much as I hate it? And my first thought was, Oh. I mean, my stomach turned because knowing the family that I was raised in and how those words would have been received, I I couldn't imagine that went well. And she said, I told him that he needed to ask you when you got here because I didn't know how you felt about it. And I'm sure that somewhere there she was phased by it. But at least when she was talking to me on the phone and as I've watched around her kids, she holds space for those really just hard, not fun questions and conversations and just bad days. I mean, Fred's got biological kids. I have three biological kids. I think even with my own biological kids, there's days they'd probably prefer a different dad, but they got me. So just holding space for the hard conversations that you're going to have, regardless of whether they're your biological kids or adoptive kids. That's a wonderful little vignette and kudos to her for not taking it personally. Um, at least in the tel- in uh, the part that you saw of it, yeah. Because what I, what I hear is that that her son was then able to have that feeling. He can tell her that he's having that feeling, and he's probably going to be able to tell her other things too, without worrying about her reaction to it. So that's that, that's exactly it. Yeah. And I think it makes all the world of difference for the adopted kid, or really any kid, to be able to just talk through those feelings and realize that so many of the times the things that are triggers for us. When people are saying to them, they're not trying to trigger us. They're just having a feeling yeah. or an emotion. And that speaks to the intimacy that, Fred, you were talking about and the, the as close as we can be when we feel safe with each other and, and without secrets and triggers in between us. Fred, what do you think people need to know to, to how to support adoptees in building healthy identities and connections right from the start? One of the things that I think is awesome that you're doing, Lori, Look at how you've approached 
adoption. You by doing this show alone, by by being an activist for adoption and for the adoptee, you are living a demonstration that shows you are open to it and that you're on their side. And I think the more that a parent can do to demonstrate that, not just, you know, make a simple comment. If you ever want to talk to me about it, just ask, you know, that to me is kind of a, a wall, you know. On the other hand, if I see my mom, if I see my dad and and they're actively doing things, if they're maybe involved in open records laws at the state level, and, and I'm aware of that, you know, now all of a sudden I know that they're in my corner. They're actually fighting for who I am as a person that has more to their story than just being your adopted child. And I'm not saying that's a small thing. I'm just saying that all of the kids that are adopted do come with a story that's a little bigger than that. And, you know, as Brad said, you know, holding space for that, that extra, you know, is it an inch? Is it a foot? Is it a mile of space that they do have something that's a little unique, different, and recognizing that you're on their side for them exploring, understanding, embracing, and growing into that, I think will go miles as they grow and get into middle and high school. I taught middle and high school for 20 years, and those are challenging periods to begin with, you know, and kids are grappling with identity, trying to figure out who they are. You know, Brad brought up that mirroring before. They've, they're have they looking at everything around them, and, you know, for the adopted population, that's a little that's a lot more challenging. And especially if you get into something like interracial adoptions, that's very challenging. And what are you doing, you know, on the front end that's demonstrating to them that you are not only fighting for their needs and fighting for who they are as an entire person, but helping them to engage in that, whether it's, you know, holding space for, if you know that they're of a different you know, genetic heritage, maybe they're Scandinavian, or maybe they're Nigerian, or whatever they are, you know, celebrating those holidays in your home, as if they're part of your family, because they are part of your family at this point. So I think whatever you can do to include their total person in the entire scope of family will help them. I know I mentioned to you a little earlier, for me, a faith-based life, and I say that as a tool for coping, and as a tool for processing can also help. So I think if you can, you know, allow kids to have some exposure to where, you know, they can explore with whatever their higher power, whatever their God is, whoever they recognize that to be, you know, and maybe that ties into their own cultural history. Maybe that's a place for that too. So I think the more you can do to show you embrace parts of them that aren't parts of you, I think that'll help firm up that relationship as they grow. And they'll see that you've acted according to what you're saying. I love that you've both used the phrase holding space, because to me, that feels expansive. And that is what openness is, rather than small and closed and fearful. So that wraps up our episode. Thank you so much, both of you for being with us. Brad, thank you for sharing your story. Thanks, Lori. I appreciate you letting me be here. And Fred, thank you as well. Um, We will have links to your books and your essays in the show notes. And it's just been a delight. Thank you for for sharing your wisdom. Special thanks to Adopting.com for producing and sponsoring this podcast. Find this and other adoption resources at Adopting.com. And consider joining other savvy and generous listeners by sharing this episode with others who maybe appreciate the insights of our guests. Please make sure to subscribe and give this episode a rating wherever you listen to help us grow. With each episode of Adoption the Long View, we bring you guests who expand your knowledge of adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of you for tuning in and investing in your adoption's long view. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, curiosity, and compassion.